practice. So if, for example, if you hear the, the phrase spiritual practice and you think that means having a prayer life, like you hear that and you're like, prayer life, you're like, I don't like prayer. You're like, boo, we just kick spiritual practices totally to the side and sort of walk away from it, which, which has happened. I, I, I know that that's happened for people. I want to tell you that spiritual practice can come from yoga. It can come from meditation. It can come from writing. It could be reading of sacred scripture and poetry. Spiritual practice could be gardening. What is more spiritual than having your hands in the body of creation? It can be parenting. It can be caretaking. It can be tending to your marriage or your partner. It can be staying sober, as those of you in 12-step programs can attest. The question becomes, what makes it a spiritual practice then? And ultimately, I believe it is the quality of attention that we bring to whatever it is we're doing. It's the quality of attention we bring to our breath, to our meditation, to our body, to our child or the children in front of us. It is about the quality of attention we bring to whatever we're doing so that we can listen deeply. We can discover spirit moving in our lives and we can disable and set aside ego to some extent. Spiritual practice is about a quality of attention that can help us awaken to a larger reality, a larger love. It can come from playing music. I want to give you a couple examples of this as well. In a sitting meditation practice, some of you meditate, some of you, that's a deeply grounding part of your spiritual practice. And in a sitting meditation practice, if you're human, (laughs) you might notice there are some thoughts that just populate your mind as you sit there meditating, the constant monkey babble of our mind, the judgments and the self-critiques and the to-do lists and the envy and the anger and whatever else just is flying across your mind as you sit there, the feelings that surface. But as you practice, as you practice meditation, you are able to notice all of those things flying across the sky of your mind, kind of like clouds. But rather than getting hooked into them and getting carried off down this path of I'm not enough or I'm not doing meditation right or I need to go do 10 things after I do this meditation practice, you just let go and it kind of moves off. You notice those things that come up. That's what being human is about but you know also you are not those things. You can return to your breath, you can return to loving kindness, you can return to the present moment. That quality of attention takes practice, but it can ground and center us. Another example to share with you about the quality of attention, the kind of attention that makes up a spiritual practice. Lately, when I've been putting our son, Tucker, to bed, I stay in bed with him for a while after he's fallen asleep. Not every night, but many nights. I pay attention. I watch his chest rise and fall. I look at his soft, smooth cheeks. I touch his forehead and run my hand through his hair. I remember the day we've spent together, the questions he's asked me, the expressions on his face, and then that gentle goodnight kiss he gave me on my stubbly cheek. Watching him sleep, I see him as a holy creation, as surely all children are. 
Watching him, I glimpse the mystery of his life, of my life, of all life. Knowing we are born and then will one day die. Though the dishes and the laundry and the sermon, the sermon writing, those things await, my heart in that moment sloughs off whatever crusty gunk is there. And it opens once again to the deepest love and compassion I know, not just for Tucker, but for all children, all people. As Karen Armstrong notes in her book, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, people throughout time have engaged in spiritual practices so that they might live with deeper compassion and love and empathy, so that every child, every adult, they see, might be seen as family. Spiritual practices open our heart, and spiritual practices can save us too. When the world feels broken, when the human family is harming and hurting and injuring one another, spiritual practices, those ways we center and ground, they can give us the courage to live in that space between the world as it is and the world as we want it to be, as we dream it might be. They give us the courage to live in that holy tension. I especially think of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in this regard. It was his prayer life, both his public and his private prayer life, that held him, that grounded him in his civil rights and racial justice work. He would often hole up in a hotel room or go into his study, and he would sit in prayer before he wrote a sermon, before he prepared a speech. One of his most transformative prayer experiences was in 1956 after a midnight call to his home from an angry, maybe frightened, I don't know, but angry, hate-filled person who threatened to kill him and his family, to destroy his home. At midnight, he got this call. Shaken to his core, King retreated to the kitchen and the kitchen table, and he began to pour his heart out to God to name his concerns and his fears, his anguish, his uncertainty about this work and if he could continue. He later preached a sermon about this moment, saying that he had a vision of God, and God was with him. God assured him that his work was righteous and that he would always have God's companionship, that that spirit of love would be with him. From that point on, King says that he felt like he was never really alone. His spiritual practice, Martin Luther King Jr.'s spiritual practice, allowed love and compassion and a commitment to justice to stay at the center of his life. Violence and fear were pushed to the side, so love and justice, compassion, lived at the center. Spiritual practices ground us, center us, guide us, and can save us. And here, here's where I'm going with this this morning. Here's where I'm going with this this morning as we stand one year into our work as a congregation beginning, just beginning, our commitment to racial justice work and understanding what that would mean for us as a faith community. What if we understood the racial justice journey we've begun this past year? What if we understood that as deeply spiritual work, as a kind of spiritual practice? 
You all may not know this, but this past year, over 100 of you have participated in a number of discussions about race and racial justice in this congregation. Dozens of you have watched movies and attended classes, such as the Skeletons in Our Closet class, which looked at the history, the backstory of this faith and our relationship with race and racism. And now we are putting together a racial justice leadership team to help us figure out this journey. What guides us in this work is the belief that God, or the spirit of love, that God is for everyone, loves everyone, that each person, regardless of skin color or gender or economic status or age or sexual orientation or ability, each person is of supreme worth and value. That is the spiritual center that holds this work as we begin our journey and really those of you who have been here for a long time, you know this isn't a journey that's just beginning. It's in some ways a returning. Some of you know that on March 15, 1965, our minister emeritus, John Cummins, I don't see him, I'm looking for him out there, he usually sits five pews back. John Cummins marched in Selma, Alabama with 200-plus Unitarian Universalist ministers after James Reeb, another Unitarian Universalist minister, was beaten to death at a civil rights demonstration. And it wasn't just ministers who showed up, either. The Unitarian Universalist Board of Trustees was meeting in Boston at the same time, and they adjourned their meeting to bear witness in Selma, Alabama. It's also important in this story to know that a few weeks earlier, an unarmed black man, Jimmy Lee Jackson, a civil rights organizer, had been shot and killed. It was his death that inspired the Selma to Montgomery march. But it was the death of James Reeb, a white man, that really stirred the nation, that mobilized the nation and these clergy to come down and ultimately hasten to the end of the Jim Crow South. John Cummins and many others were there because it was a religious imperative. Their faith required them to be there. They understood that the health of the body of this country depended upon the freedom and liberation of all. They understood that racism was like a cancer or a toxic sickness in the body politic, and they wanted to remove that cancer. It's also important to remember that not everyone in this church supported John Cummins in this march. And looking back now, we do take, we can take pride in this piece of our history. But pride is not enough. Racism is still with us today. There's still an infection in our collective body. And it's killing us. It's wasting lives, creativity, possibility. We are slow to respond with the urgency that this situation requires. Here's what I mean. If there's an infection in our foot, in your foot, you would not say, I'll get to that later. My hands, my other foot, it's just fine. They're fine. I'm not worried about this infected foot over here. No. If we were infected or if there was a, a cancer, and I don't mean to make light of cancer, but if we, were, if we were really sick, if there was an infection in our hand or our foot, we would do everything in our power. We would marshal all of the resources we had to eliminate, to get rid of that illness. 
Racism is that kind of sickness. And when we don't respond to racism or seek to understand whiteness and some of the harmful ways it operates in the world, we are, despite whatever the good intentions we have, we are enacting violence on the collective body and ignoring an infection that harms us all. I'm going to stop for a minute here. Because one of the things that I've learned this past year, as I've read, this is a journey for me, believe me, as I've read about race and racism and white privilege and how to preach on it in congregations, is to pay attention to when people are checking out. I'm not saying you're all checking out right now. But I am saying that some of you are looking down at your to-do list and your phones and other things because I'm not, I don't know for sure why, but here's what I think it might be. And I have the same response as I've done this work. It is not easy to listen or to talk about race, especially for us white folk. It is not easy. We would rather do a bunch of laundry. and some dishes, and whatever other household chores there might be, then really sit down and think about or talk about race. The truth is, I was going to do a Father's Day sermon today. I was going to talk about our relationship with our dads and how important you know, it is for our children to see us have emotional lives and spiritual practices and all this stuff. It's all true. It's a good sermon. I'll preach it next year, probably. <laughs> <laughs> But as I started thinking about it more, what I realized, and, and my son is here, I'm not sure he's totally paying attention to everything I'm saying, but he's in this service with me right now, with my um, mother who's visiting. And what I realized is, as a father, as a white father, the most important thing I can do is actually step up to this conversation so that I can model that for my family and for the other dads in this congregation because what I can tell you in this last year is most of the people who are showing up to these conversations that we're having are people of color and women. The white men, for the most part, aren't showing up. I think that says something. I think it says something about how important this is as spiritual work. We say, what is going on there? How can I pay attention to what's coming up? How can I look for the spirit of love moving in this discomfort I'm experiencing? So it's not a Father's Day sermon. If it is, I'm coming in sideways on it today. What I've also learned is that most white people from a really, really young age are taught not to see their race or to think critically about their race at all. Most white people are just taught to believe that if they have a race at all, they're just part of the human race. The truth is, of course, that race shapes every dimension of our lives. My friend and mentor, someone I've been talking with uh, monthly, about this work. Josh Pollock is his name. He writes, and I want to share some of his thoughts with you. If we're white, this is, this is in reflecting on how it shapes every dimension of our lives. He says, if we're white, we don't wake up one morning and say, I think I'll be part of the privileged racial group. Or if we're a person of color, we don't wake up and say, I'd like an appearance that invites negative racial profiling. His point is that we do not define ourselves racially. Our racial identity is chosen for us when we're babies, and it doesn't take long for us to accept our racial identity as a fact of life and then to internalize the positive or negative messages that society tells us about that racial identity. We don't have free will in this matter, 
says Josh Pollock. As an example, as an example, can you imagine, he says, can you imagine white people waiting in line at the store or the bank to be served and saying, don't treat me like I'm white. Go ahead, serve someone else because I'm not white. Feel free to follow me around. This is another example. Feel free to follow me around as I shop because I'm not white. Don't have high expectations for my child because he's not white. You've pulled me over, officer, I assume, because I'm not white. Can you imagine white people walking into people of color communities or churches and then saying, says Josh, saying, I know I look white, but I'm not white. Please don't treat me as white. It sounds ludicrous. You can laugh. Those are funny laugh lines. And it is ludicrous. But the opposite scenario for people of color would seem just as ludicrous, except that it is a normal, everyday experience. People of color have asked for centuries not to be evaluated based on the color of their skin, not to be prejudged, not to be discriminated against, not to be profiled or lynched or run off their lands, stereotyped, segregated, exploited, not to be invisible. They have been asking for a social, political, and economic identity beyond race, and it hasn't yet happened. No white person can take off white skin no white person can give up the various privileges that come with white skin. No person of color can take off their skin either. No person of color can completely overcome the historical and systemic disadvantages perpetuated by institutional racism. Josh ends this section by saying, the demonic power of race is a power larger than us. So what I want you to hear, church, and I know this is a lot to take in, and if you're having some feelings, just note them. Take this as a time for some spiritual practice. Wow, I'm feeling uncomfortable. Wow, I didn't think this was going to be the sermon today. Wow, I've been waiting to hear this for a long time. Wow. Wow. What I want you to hear church is that seeing racial justice work as spiritual work, as a spiritual practice, as a particular way to pay attention for us as white folk, those of us that are white, that is where I think we are being called as a faith community to move into that spiritual work. As Heather Hackman, the white racial justice educator and trainer who will be working with us in the fall says, she says, if love, compassion, and service are at the heart of many faiths, and those are, then it stands to reason that the mere existence of something so hateful, so inhumane, and so toxic as racial oppression or any other form of oppression is an affront, an impediment to one actualizing their chosen spirituality. Racism is an affront to the spirit of life the spirit of life that does not prioritize one nation or one people over another. And church, this past year, something woke up in us. A bunch of you started showing up to these conversations, started talking, started thinking about race and racism and what our next steps might be. We are returning to our racial justice journey equipped with the tools of our faith. One of the first steps for white people like me, one of the first spiritual practices is to begin to really pay attention to whiteness and how it operates. 
This is critical. It's critical for our own salvation. As white theologian Carolyn Browning Helsel writes, ignoring the implications of being white or trying to pretend one is not white only adds to the frustration of people of color. If we believe that there is a truer self, a deeper self, beyond our racial identity, then this work of paying attention to whiteness becomes a spiritual practice, a way to catch a glimpse of that true, deeper, realer self, a self not based on skin color or the privileges that come with that skin color. Here's what I know. As a father, as a father, when I sit next to my son after he's asleep and I watch him sleeping, I know in my heart with 100% certainty that no child is born a racist or homophobic or anything. Yes, kids notice difference around skin color, but they don't ascribe racial meaning to it. We teach that. Our culture teaches that. It's taught in many, many ways. And it has led us astray, this racism. It has separated us from ourselves and from others. When we begin to understand racial justice work as spiritual work, we see that it is about coming home to our deepest self, returning to wholeness, healing the the human body. There will be bumps on this journey, I have no doubt. There will be discomfort for many of us, including me. The spiritual practice will be to stay engaged, to listen deeply, to make mistakes and amends and practice forgiveness, to keep our hearts open to where the spirit of life is moving and our discomfort to pay attention to where we're being called next. This racial justice journey is about a belief in a spirit of life that loves each and every one of us. It is about our faith being lived in our practices. It is about seeing and protecting the light, seeing and protecting the light in every human heart so that those lights can shine and bless and help heal this world. May it be so. May it be so.